Thank you, Dennis. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes on these mornings, you, you get the impression that we ought to just uh, take the rest of our time and continue to pray. Uh, there, there just, there are always a lot of issues in all of our hearts and minds with our families and so forth. Uh, but um, in the middle of all of them, there is the wonderful news that uh, Leslie Martin's mother illustrates so well, uh, because I doubt there are many families, I would say any families, but uh, we'll just stay with many families uh, that don't have people they wish knew the Lord, and in terms of what they can assess, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Uh, but the point is, it is 100% a movement of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> and, um, and the Lord moves in his ways, uh, but uh, the bottom line is there is hope. There is always, always hope. Uh, so <clears throat> on that note, if you'll turn to the 14th chapter of Luke, we're going to continue... Moving through this, uh, what some people call the, the middle section of, of Luke, I don't know, it's kind of hard to make a distinction of, of front from the middle from the end, but <clears throat> what we've seen is, is a very um, purposeful set of events in, in the life of Jesus and these disciples that the Holy Spirit has chosen to record for us in this gospel, uh, true of all of the books of scripture, but um, when you know the end, when you know what's coming, you can understand it, but uh, I always like to keep in mind the fact that these, these 12 men did not know the end. As they are hearing these things, we need to, uh, to understand the impact and the influence of it. Uh, today, we're going to see another event that is very, very similar to several events in this same book that God has already shown us through the actions of Jesus Christ. And that should raise all the flags up. Even though it's one of those sort of uh, mundane-ish, um, repetitive uh, events in the life of, of Jesus, the fact that it's given repeatedly means we need to really, really understand what's going on here and pay close attention to it. It's easy in these kinds of things to, to just run right through it. Uh, but that would be a mistake. This 14th chapter happens to be where we get back into uh, the section of Luke where he gives a lot of parables. We're on the edge of, of a lot of parables. This is the gospel that has more than any of the other uh, gospels. And uh, we're going to bump into one or two of them actually today. We're going to go through the first 14 verses of chapter 14. And uh, we begin uh, in verses uh, one to six. What, what is happening here is another dinner party, if you will, uh, put on by Pharisees. First uh, six verses, the trap is going to be sprung as it always is. 
uh, by these men. Verses 7 to 11 is a, is a seating chart, and then the guest list is going to be verses 12 to 14. Now, these uh, Pharisees, of course, are out to, to get him, and by this point, it's, it's overt. They're not hiding that fact anymore. And uh, Jesus has been here often in this, in this situation and scenario, and uh, it's going to go in somewhat predictable fashion, except now Jesus is going to turn the tables uh, in this particular event. Uh, so looking at verses one to six, the trap that is set. Now the question is going to be, who's the trap really set for? Uh, the Pharisees, of course, by this point have had practice at this, at inviting Jesus in and having a, a meal with him uh, so they can, can play stump the band. They've, they've had several iterations of this, whether it's healing on the Sabbath or whether it's uh, the way he conducts himself and so forth. And it always turns out badly for the Pharisees, uh, but they are a bit slow on the uptake. So verse one <clears throat> says, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Uh, always the case, uh, as, as we've seen, that they're watching Jesus carefully, uh, waiting to see some, some uh, way in which they can, can address what is, is doing. In verse two, behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Uh, today, dropsy, that word has dropped out. Today, we would probably call this edema, but it's a buildup of, of fluid in uh, body tissues and can come from any number of, of physiological purposes. But here is this man, lo and behold, and it would be uh, probably stretch the imagination not to believe that this guy was a plant. Uh, this guy was, the Pharisees had this man at, at the dinner party and uh, we'll see what, what Jesus is going to do about this. Now, again, <clears throat> I've mentioned that we've seen something similar to this. If, if you go back to Luke uh, chapter four, Luke chapter four, beginning in the 31st verse, uh, is, is a story about Jesus healing a man with an unclean spirit. At that point, he was in a town called Capernaum, city up in the Galilee, was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice. And of course, Jesus uh, rebukes the unclean spirit. And he goes on from there that the rest of that fourth chapter, the next heading uh, is that Jesus heals many. Because in verse 38, it says, he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. He's going to heal her, uh, rebuke the fever, uh, it says. And uh, he continued throughout the rest of that chapter, healing many people, even on the Sabbath, which was problematic, uh, as hard as that is to believe, for the Pharisees who are complete legalists. Now, if you go to Luke 6, just uh, another couple of, of chapters over, beginning in the sixth verse. Uh, a man with a withered hand. On another Sabbath, it says in verse six, he entered the synagogue and was teaching and a man uh, was there whose right hand was withered and he's going to heal that man. 
and the Pharisees again and the scribes, the, the teachers of the law, are going to be upset at him. Uh, how, how dare he do these kinds of things on the Sabbath? And verse 7 of chapter 6 says, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see if uh, any number of conclusions to that sentence can be drawn, but the Pharisees are very uh, very careful to to take note of this of this man this this person named Jesus uh, who is all of a sudden in their midst and he 's healing people dramatically uh, stunningly miraculously, and they don 't know what to do with all of this in the very next chapter, Luke chapter seven. <laughs> Verse 36 begins another similar event. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table, and lo and behold, here is a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and you remember how that event ends. And again, Jesus forgives her sins, Verse 39 of that chapter says, the Pharisee said to himself, if you notice every time Jesus performs these miracles, the Pharisee's response is never overtly to him. It's always thinking to themselves or talking to each other or talking about Jesus to someone else. It's, it's never overt. You get to the 11th chapter of Luke. <clears throat> Luke 11, beginning uh, in verse 37. Woe to the Pharisees and lawyers is, is the heading that begins this section. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. It doesn't matter what the issue is. These Pharisees are, are upset routinely and why they keep going through this exercise of asking uh, Jesus, uh, it's kind of hard to understand. Uh, but nonetheless, here in, in chapter 11, Jesus ate without washing his hands. And it says in verse 39, the Pharisee was astonished at this. Uh, hard to understand why he would be astonished at this point, having seen this over and over again. And of course, in Luke chapter 13, a passage we recently uh, looked at in chapter 13, verse 10, uh, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath and behold, there was a woman who had, a, uh, had had a disabling spirit for 18 years, was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. And of course, he's going to heal her too. And in verse 14 of chapter 13, it says, the ruler of the synagogue was indignant and said to the people, going to talk to the people about Jesus. He's still no, no uh, open confrontation. And that gets us, uh, to another dinner party that, that we see here in chapter 14. Again on a Sabbath, he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees and they were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man there who had dropsy. Now in verse three, Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now this is a bit of a, of a new wrinkle here. Jesus, of course, knows perfectly well what is on their hearts and minds and what they're trying to do by having him uh, encounter this particular man with dropsy. But rather than waiting for them, 
Jesus puts them on the spot. Jesus asks them the question at this point. Uh, he responds to them. They've done something, said something, did something, whatever. And he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or is it not? Uh, <clears throat> so the Pharisees are in a pickle here. They say yes. Uh, they appear to be soft, not so legalistic, which that is absolutely not something that the Pharisees wish to appear nor will uh, accept. They are known for their strictness and their legality. So no, they're not going to say uh, that it's sure it's lawful. Go ahead and, and violate the Sabbath. We, we must not have meant what we said in all of these laws that we've performed. But if they say no, it's not lawful, then they look uncaring, uh, unsympathetic. Here's a person yet again, as we've seen so many times through this, this book, a person who is, is hurting and in, in need of something, uh, not to appear to be at least concerned wouldn't look good either. So they don't, they're, they're caught and not surprisingly in verse four, they remain silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. So Jesus uh, takes, at, after the silence of the Pharisees, Jesus takes uh, this man with dropsy, heals him and dismisses him from, from uh, this dinner, this event that's going on. Now in verse five, Jesus is not through. He's going to ask yet another question. He says to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Now, there's a lot of that that's, that's frankly has the sense of a rhetorical question. Jesus said, I, I can't believe that the answer is that all of you would help pull your son out and you would act immediately on it and you wouldn't pause any to think, well, this is a Sabbath. Uh, maybe I shouldn't do it. So Jesus is, uh, is getting in their face just a tad, uh, thinking, of course you would do this. Even if it was your ox, you would do it. And interestingly, the, the uh, legalistic uh, packet, that the packet, uh, multi-volume Britannica that the, the Pharisees have put together would allow that. It allowed for getting an ox in particular out of a well on a Sabbath. Uh, so, how are the Pharisees going to respond now? Well, verse six, and they could not reply to these things. So this, this, uh, these, these men are, are speechless. Once again, have been shown to be odd, uh, uncaring, bizarre, counterintuitive, whatever kind of a pejorative word you want to put on it. Jesus has shown these people to be what they really are. He's going to go from there into the seating chart in verse seven to 11. Verse seven, he says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. This was uh, not just a, a practice of, of Pharisees. Frankly, it happens today. Um, it would be hard for any of us, I would imagine, not to remember a time or an event uh, that we attended or, or hosted or whatever. 
when our thoughts were going to the particular people that we assumed we were going to be with and how we wanted to, to uh, move our positioning around to, to get uh, access to them one way or another, whether we sat by them at a table or whether we had um, some other methodology in mind. I, I had uh, my years at Westminster Seminary as, as head of the um, development uh, team uh, we had a lot of events, and so many came to mind as I was, was going through this passage. Uh, two of them stand out in particular. One, one was held at uh, a home of a very, very gracious couple who were enormously wealthy, uh, world-class wealth, um, wonderful, wonderful Christian people. These, this, this couple... I did so many things. In, in fact, here we were at, at, a, at a house in what is considered, uh, it's even called today the main line area of Philadelphia, which came about from the main line, railroad line, uh, that ran from Philly out to Chicago. But it's uh, Bryn Mawr, uh, Catherine Hepburn, Grace Kelly-ish part of Philadelphia. And here we have this, this uh, dinner at a home of, of a couple. Uh, he was an elder in the church uh, up there, Proclamation PCA, and a good friend. He was a doctor, medical doctor, head of the trauma center at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, considered the best children's hospital on the planet. Um, you know who catered their dinner in their home? <laughs> true. His wife had a role to play. That is certainly true. Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> Catherine didn't have anything to do with this. She was a she was a Bryn Mawr gal. Um, where is Bobby? Was it Salvation Army? Salvation Army catered it. Uh, their food, their people. Uh, it, that was as soon as I saw that I thought this is this is going to be interesting. Uh, well, I knew what was in the mind of of some of the folks uh, there because they were assuming the guest list would include dignitaries and and wealthy people. Uh, because I knew that church well and in fact had had played uh, a role in its founding. There was one particular lady there that I knew was probably wealthier than anybody else in the room, but she didn't look it. She didn't parade it. Nobody knew it. I knew it, uh, but I was probably close to the only one other than the pastor of the church. And I watched as the folks who were interested in this, this event being productive for the seminary in terms of, of gifts, perhaps, or at least beginning friendships, uh, ignore this woman. She would come up and they would, hello, how are you doing? And immediately, that was their sign, go see somebody else, because who, who is this? You can't be a person of import. Uh, my point being that all of these things uh, are issues that we struggle with. These are not just because these people happen to be Pharisees. We're all engaged in this uh, movement of the pieces around the chessboard. Uh, I mentioned a second, uh, this was one that brought tears. The president of Westminster at that point, I worked with, with all of them. They're, 
the fourth one is in place now, uh, who was actually a pastor of this church I just mentioned out in Bryn Mawr. But um, the second president, wonderful man, uh, he and I had been attempting over and over and over again to get a people together to, to let them tell us about Westminster Symphony. We finally had succeeded in a large way at a venue in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we gathered there and there were like 300 people present. And we were stunned. It was We were just so delighted that we were finally getting a large group of people that we could talk to about Westminster Seminary. And there was, uh, of course, it was in a hotel and uh, you had to go through the meal before you could get to the spiel. And uh, we were impatient. Uh, this, this president and I were sitting up there eating together, talking about, can we just rush this thing along so we can get, because we had so much to say and we were so excited about it. Literally the, the minute that the dessert plates were gathered, somebody in the hotel pulled a fire alarm. <laughs> and these guys came in looking like Ghostbuster movies, you know, they're, they're breathing, they've got masks on and they're, they're the firefighters of Grand Rapids came in and said, you've got to evacuate them. But we said, uh, really, can't we stay? There's no, we don't smell smoke, we're okay. He said, no. We said, well, how long do we have to, well, it was Michigan and it was winter and it was cold. He said, you can hang around the park a lot if you wish, it'll be about three hours before we'll let you back in. So the president and I came back in three hours later with one person who was collecting more dishes. And that was, uh, that was the sum total of, uh, of that particular dinner. At any rate, uh, these, these dinners have gathered for throughout history. And in, in verse seven here, Jesus is gonna tell them a parable because he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Now, what does their seating chart reveal? Well, pride, ambition, arrogance, Self-centeredness, elitism, their shriveled souls is what it, it illustrates. And with all of us, even those of us who've worked for seminaries, we're, we're sometimes miss the whole point of what is behind uh, benevolence and issues of that nature. Um, down in verse 24 of this, of this uh, chapter, you read... For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. In other words, uh, this is going to get worse, not better. They're, they're um, a dinner of the damned is what I wrote. Uh, that may be a little strong, but I don't think so. Not from what Jesus is saying here. Uh, so in verses eight and nine, he's going to in, instruct the guests what not to do. Chapter 14, verse eight, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So very, very rigid um, and, and understood. It's one of those uh, subconscious uh, sociological understandings of people that uh, if you're up at the head of the table in this instance at least and the ancient world certainly and frankly I think it's it's, it's true today the, the the most important folks are up front and then the further away you get the the uh, sort of unwritten rule is that maybe you're not so important 
Uh, but Jesus is going to give them this painful scenario that would lead to embarrassment, humiliation, uh, if you follow your pride and try to sneak into the part of the, of the table that you don't belong. He's referring here to Proverbs chapter 25. I'll read you two verses. Proverbs 25, verses six and seven say this. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. It's an interesting interesting bit of wisdom there from, uh, from uh, the book of Proverbs and, and uh, Again, we've probably all, I, I hope not, but uh, my guess is maybe there were times when we uh, ran into some kind of situation like this and found it demeaning and embarrassing. Um, I made a note of one that, <laughs> I'm not gonna go into that. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was so bad, so bad, but uh, Ask me about it later and I'll tell you. Verse nine, he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this person and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. So the, the, the idea is if you sneak in where you're not supposed to be, the host is gonna come and remove you and say, no, no, uh, you're not supposed to be up here. Let me bring this guy up and you go wherever, wherever you can find a place. Verse 10, Jesus is gonna teach him a better way. Verse 10, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Uh, interesting there too, that Jesus would, would come and uh, in this parable suggest that, that you take a place. Uh, what is behind it, of course, is the understanding that you don't know all the people in the room and you don't really, uh, in those situations, don't let your pride take over and put you in a place you don't need to be. Um, I do remember one instance that I can tell you about there. Uh, my first day at Westminster Seminary as a student, um, shell-shocked, uh, out of my league, knowing that, that the least intelligent human that had ever attended Westminster was was sitting there, namely me, and uh, being completely in awe of, of everything, all of the history, all of, of the notion of the Reformed faith. And here I was with, with these uh, people who I consider the best uh, teachers of the Reformed faith on the planet. And if I'd have had duct tape, I'd have put it over my mouth because I didn't want to make obvious what I knew the, the truth to be. Namely, here's this buffoon over here, what's he doing? When a professor came and sat down with me, we were, it was a picnic, we were out on, on the grass and he sits down with me and I'm literally shaking, thinking, is there any way I can get through this without getting myself uh, kicked out of the school the first day I'm, I'm here? And I don't know if he sensed it, I don't know. It probably wouldn't have been hard, but, but uh, he had this conversation with me that completely changed everything I thought uh, from that moment forward. And, and he, he said, you know, I'm so happy that, that you're here because you and I are exactly on the same level. Uh, we are sitting at the feet of the Lord. We're sitting at the feet of his word, trying to learn it better so that we can bring more honor to him. And I am honored to have you here as a student. And I thought, I... I 
I've shrank smaller uh, while my heart was bursting larger. And uh, that, uh, that man's action that day. Uh, Jesus is teaching here that there's a better way and a better way is, is a humble way, a, a position of humility. And in verse 11, he concludes this little episode here by saying, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, back in the first chapter of Luke, the 52nd verse in the middle of Mary's Magnificat. Now think about the position Mary was in. A very, very young uh, woman who is not yet officially married and uh, she's getting this news about, about uh, what singular role she is going to play in the history of the planet. And she, she comes up with this song, we call it the Magnificat. And in verse 52, she says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Uh, we've looked at another passage going forward in Luke uh, to chapter 18, which illustrates this uh, even more, I think, beginning in the ninth verse. Again, familiar, I've, we've looked at it before. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. All of these, uh, this, is a, this is a standard theme that runs from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. Humility uh, is something that becomes people, not false humility, not, uh, not trying to fake it, but understanding the truth, which is that we are all totally depraved, sinful people. And there, but for the grace of God, uh, only when God gives me his grace, uh, which he has done, not because I deserved it, not even because I was seeking it, but because he chose out of his grace to grant it to all of us uh, who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, that, that leaves me no, no ground to be anything but humbled before my Lord and Savior. Uh, <clears throat> he's going to go into to verses 12, 13, and 14, now into the guest list. Begins another parable, but it's part of, of what has led into it. We'll, Lord willing, do this, uh, hit this parable fully next week, but he begins in verse 12 this way. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. What he's saying is don't, don't have these kinds of events based on this quid pro quo 
Uh, I'm going to throw you a party, therefore I expect you will throw me a party and we will keep ratcheting this thing up and it will, uh, I'm doing it for ulterior motives. In other words, invite your friends, neighbors, absolutely, uh, but not in a manner and not for the purpose of maneuvering them for a personal reward is what Jesus is saying here. And verses 13 and 14, he, uh, he concludes the portion we're going to look at. He says in verse 13, but when you give a feast, uh, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, verse 14, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And by the way, that's the first time in the gospel of Luke, the word resurrection appears. Uh, so this is a significant uh, issue that Jesus is, is talking about here. Now he doesn't mean that every time you're, you're not forbidden to have parties or dinners or any gatherings of that sort, unless uh, you have gone out into the street and, and uh, invited the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Uh, he's simply saying that, that look at your heart and the motives that drive you to do what you're doing uh, when you come to these, uh, to these kinds of events. Your reward will be the resurrection of the just. Uh, in other words, do justice. Consider doing justice. That is a theme. Remember early in Luke, we ran into that often. And Luke is the gospel. Of all the four gospels, Luke talks more about this notion of justice and the poor. Uh, he, he talks about money all the time. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, which uh, the others do not. Uh, so it's, it's on his mind and heart, but it's a theme that runs. You cannot read any of the prophets of, of the Old Testament without uh, seeing that one of their litmus tests immediately about the health of their culture was what are you doing with the people who are less than you are? The people who you would tend to uh, not want to associate with, the people that uh, don't for whatever number of reasons and many are possible, some of them uh, self-determined, some of them coming from, from other events uh, they had no control over, but nonetheless, what are you doing with these people in your midst? And what is your heart doing when you do whatever it is you do or don't do toward them? Now, obviously Jesus is not concerned here with whether we have a, a proper guest list, how we do the seating charts, at events. That's not the import of what we have just gone through, nor will it be where we go next. You see the parable of the great banquet. That's where we will be next week, uh, Lord willing. I want to take you to another passage uh, to, to give you an indication of what Jesus is doing when he's telling us what he has, has just uh, mentioned, this, this event, and all of them that we have reflected on through this Gospel of Luke. Second chapter of Philippians, uh, very, very well-known passage. I would think uh, certainly, arguably the most well-known from the book of Philippians, often called the parabola of redemption. You know what a parabola is? General shape of a parabola. Parabola of redemption, Philippians chapter two. I'm gonna start with verse one. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then beginning in the sixth verse and running through verse 11 is this great parabola of redemption. And what is meant by that over the centuries of theologians trying to, trying to put their arms around the import of this passage is the fact that Jesus begins in complete communion with the Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all together in complete communion. Then Jesus is sent on this mission. We talked about this last week as the covenant of redemption, where the Father says, I'm going to have a people who bring glory to me and I will love and they will love me. But all the people are sinners and I can't associate with sinners. So I've got to figure out a way that that kind of person, a sinful person, AKA us, can be in perfect communion with God the Father. The way I'm going to do it, God says to his son Jesus, is send you down to this earth, incarnate, fully God, fully man. You're going to take on all of the sins of the people that are mine and I'm going to punish you in their place. Two words, substitutionary atonement. Our sins go on Jesus, including to the point of dying on a cross. That's the apogee, that's the bottom of the parabola. And then I'm going to raise you and bring you back, bring you back to heaven, seated on a throne, beside me, and in fact, you're going to be higher there, and one can't understand what is meant here, but higher than you were to begin this parabola. All of that is contained in verses six to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's it. It, scripture is incredibly capable of using a very short number of verses to say some very profound truth. And that, those little couple of verses there are what is behind. Jesus doesn't care what the, the, how you put the guest list together. Uh, as long as your heart is right. Uh, he doesn't, he's not giving us uh, some sort of Martha Stewart etiquette lesson here in, in Luke 14. He's, it's, there's something much, much more profound. And the paradigm for it is our Lord and Savior himself, Jesus Christ. Uh, those couple of verses there uh, have so many unique features that disclose all of this. In verse six, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Uh, that word form there only occurs twice in all of Paul's writings. And you just read both, both occurrences. And uh, they, are, they are very, very unique. <clears throat> but uh, if you continue through that, that notion of the, of the form of a servant, uh, found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross, so God exalts him. And then at the end of it, so that the, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And then in verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now we think, okay, we know that, but we don't really know that. We don't really understand that. I mentioned the covenant of redemption. The word Lord there, when everyone knows that Jesus Christ is Lord, it means that Jesus Christ is the covenant. He is the covenant Lord. He is the one that connects us to the Father. He is the one that is behind everything we know about the covenant of grace. Uh, very profound. Let me just read you, I'll conclude with one paragraph from, uh, I love this guy, Dennis Johnson. He's written a commentary, excellent commentary on Philippians. And here's how he summarizes what we just read and what Jesus is teaching through these Pharisees at a dinner party, what he's teaching to you and to me today. Unbreakable cords of grace bind believers to our Savior so tightly that Christ conveys his mindset to us through his Holy Spirit. Think about that. Christ conveys his mindset to us through the working of the Holy Spirit. When Christ Jesus left the bliss of heaven for the miseries of earth for you, his purpose was not only to rescue you from your sins, just deserts, though it was that. It was not only to set you an example of humility, though it was that. It was also to reconfigure the inclinations of your heart so that his mindset that is his joy in selflessly serving others is becoming your mindset. Um, tempting not to just take off in Philippians next week, but we're not going to do that. Uh, but uh, the point is, this is th this whole notion of God the Father sending the Son on a mission, a mission that would include his dying on a cross, then resurrected, ascending, and now sending the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Acts chapter two. Uh, and now we have this, this Lord, Lord Jesus Christ is Lord. He is connecting. He is moving my heart, moving my inclinations as I grow and mature as a Christian so that I will, will be more of the person uh, that he would want me to be and that would bring honor and glory to his name. There's a lot uh, more than just uh, dinner etiquette behind this passage in Luke 14, and we'll see it amplified even further next week. Let's pray. Father, uh, help us as we get to these kinds of passages uh, to understand uh, some of, of the depth of them. Uh, we'll never be able to, to plumb all of the depth, uh, but we do ask indeed and gratitude that uh, because your Holy Spirit is within us, because your Holy Spirit is within every believer leading us, help us not to quench that spirit. Help us not to grieve that spirit. Help us to listen to that spirit 
and allow that spirit into our hearts, to open our hearts, to expand our hearts, to make us more humble to be sure, but to make us so much more than just humility, to help us understand that because of your grace, your thoughts are becoming more and more our thoughts and the salvation that you have granted us freely when we were so undeserving. Father, that will humble us and also cause us to shout in glory and honor to bring you all of that praise. We, we thank you that you give us this journey. We thank you that you give us the hardships along the way. We thank you that those things we prayed for, all of these are in your sovereign purpose, Father. And if we will listen to the Holy Spirit through them and focus on your son, Jesus Christ, the praise will come to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being a believer, a Christian. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.